the amazing thing about what we just sang, Emmanuel, God with us, is that, that there was that refrain at the end, um, uh, you, we are here, you are holy, and we're standing in your glory. You know, the Israelites would have been able to sing that in the, in the wilderness because the glory of the Lord inhabited the temple. Um, but they weren't really standing in his glory. Only one person was able to do that one time a year in a very specific way. So they could have sang that song, but it would have been a different sense in which they were standing in the glory of the Lord. There's that scene in Exodus when the glory of God descends into the Holy of Holies. But we are here this morning and we can truly sing that we are standing in the glory of the Lord because we each function as living stones building up into the temple of God that he inhabits. So in a very real sense, in a much more real sense than was the case for Israel, we are standing among the glory of the Lord this morning. So praise God for that. It's good to be back uh, with you all. Um, the elders were away at our retreat last week. I'm I'm grateful for the prayers. I heard from many that um, you were praying for us as we were away, and uh, we were praying for you as well. We spent much time praying for every name in the membership at Four Corners and others. The Lord was very kind to us as we were uh, away and discussed, gave us great unity and clarity as we talked about issues relating to the future of Four Corners. Uh, There was not much retreat involved, I will say. It was mainly work. Um, uh, they let us out of the house to go to dinner um, about 8 p.m., um, but other than that, uh, through breakfast and through lunch and the rest of the day was spent working. So um, it was a good time, and the Lord was kind to us. If you're interested in hearing more about what came out of that, I would encourage you to uh, come to our members' meeting next week. If you're a member at Four Corners, that's where we plan to communicate what came out of that, uh, that weekend, um, so you can hear there. As Will prayed, uh, grateful for uh, Pastor Tony coming last week, uh, traveling down I-85 from East Point and bringing the word to us and supplying the pulpit. It was a, a great reminder from John chapter 11 that our greatest need is indeed not the resolution of our situation, but our greatest need indeed is the resurrection that only Jesus provides, the salvation that only he provides, because he himself, as he says, is the resurrection and the life. Uh, as Will prayed, it is a blessing to have churches of like faith, uh, like East Point, uh, with, as, as partners in the gospel with us. I trust you welcomed him warmly. Um, I have no reason to believe you did not, that he was... Uh, welcomed here, and I look forward to seeing how the Lord might uh, knit our congregations together uh, more and more in the future for the sake of the gospel. By way of reminder, we are between series right now. If you are visiting, uh, we recently finished a two-year walk through the book of Romans. Um, Before that, we were two years in Genesis. Before that, we were a year in the Sermon on the Mount. You see that tends to be the pattern here. And we look forward to uh, some number of years in Exodus. That's where we are headed next. Uh, But until then, we've decided to spend a few weeks uh, in Philippians. That's the parallel text that I'm preaching through. So we will have this week, Lord willing, and next week still in Philippians. And then the following week, uh, Lonnie will return to the pulpit and we will begin our journey through Exodus. 
Uh, I'm grateful that Lonnie's been able to have this month away from preaching uh, to rest after uh, being in Romans and to prepare for Exodus. So uh, until then, we will uh, continue our walk slowly through Philippians. I would invite you to turn to chapter 1. We'll be finishing chapter 1 this morning, but actually starting a new chunk. So the, the chapter break between 1 and 2 is, is kind of irrelevant in Philippians. But for all intents and purposes, we'll be finishing chapter 1 this morning, verses 27 through 30. Since chapter 1, verse 12, Paul has been in update mode. He's writing to his friends in Philippi, trying to catch them up on the status of what's happening as he's in prison in Rome. His first update was ministerial in nature, verses 12 through 18. He updated them on the status of the gospel in and around Rome as his ministry has been conducted from a prison cell. And then his second update was personal in nature. This is what we looked at two weeks ago in verses 18 through 26 as Paul talked about how he desired the honoring of Christ through his own body as his situation came to some kind of resolution. Whether that was life or death, he's not sure. As long as he was honoring Christ, he would be okay. And as his personal update closed, uh, this is towards the end of last sermon, verses 25 and 26, Paul ends up convinced that he will not die in prison. He seems to be convinced that he will be released for the sake of continuing in ministry and further promoting the cause of Christ. And this brings to mind the Philippians again for him. He writes of their progress and joy in the faith. That was in verse 25. And as he mentions their progress and joy in the faith, this functions as the swing from Paul's, Paul's personal and ministerial focus to a focus on the Philippians. So he now begins to write for their benefit. And this is what launches him into this next section of the letter. It begins with an exhortation in verse 27. But after all, this, this letter Paul did not write just so that he could uh, wax eloquent on and on about his situation. But he is writing for their benefit. And it is to that interest that he now turns in today's verse, in today's verses. We're moving past status updates, and now Paul turns his attention to begin instructing the saints in Philippi. So if you have Philippians chapter 1 available, I would invite you to stand, and let's turn our attention to these verses. We will go back to chapter 1, verse 12. And we'll read from there through the end of chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, but that with full courage, now as always. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You can be seated. And as you do, we'll pray for the Lord to apply this to our hearts this morning. No amount of focus and note-taking can rightly apply this word to your heart on its own. But you need the help of the Spirit. So let's pray for that now. God, as we've already prayed this morning and as we've already sung and as we've already heard, it it is a grace that we are able to be here and we worship you and we are blessed for the opportunity to come and gather together with one another and worship the God of heaven. We pray now that as we walk through this text, as we walk through these words penned 2,000 years ago from one brother to another church, we pray that your spirit would indeed apply them to our hearts rightly, that you would convict where conviction is needed, you would encourage where encourage is needed, you would provide balm where balm is needed, This would be heavy where heaviness is needed and it would be light where lightness is needed. And your spirit has the ability and flexibility to apply this text in 300 different ways to 300 different hearts this morning. That's what we ask for. We also ask for you to be with our children this morning and so many who are behind those double doors teaching them and praying for them and modeling for them what a life of Christ looks like. We pray that after years and years of of being here week after week that the message of the gospel would sink into our children's hearts and you would set your love on them and pick them up out of their deadness of sin and breathe the life of the gospel into them. We pray that for our children. We pray that for those here this morning under the sound of my voice that do not know you. So God, be with us now as we do this humanly impossible task of understanding spiritual things. Would you be with us? Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is Citizens Together for the Gospel. Citizens Together for the Gospel. And as Paul 
I mentioned that he gives an exhortation. This is going to be the, the first exhortation, the first instruction in the whole letter. And as he does that, he, he really gives uh, three instructions that hang together to the Philippians. Those things, those three instructions are to be worthy citizens, onward together, fully engaged. Paul's encouragement to the Philippians is that they would be worthy citizens, onward together, fully engaged. As we've seen, uh, as I already mentioned and as we read, Paul expects his, uh, his imprisonment to end with freedom because he's convinced it is more necessary that he continue on for the sake of the Philippians and others, we presume, It is more necessary for him to continue on for their sake, for their progress in the faith, than it would be for him to go on and be with the Lord, which would be far better, but he says this would be more necessary. So he begins to encourage them right away, whether he comes or whether he does not come, Paul begins to encourage them towards their progress and joy in the faith right away. And he's saying, whether I am there or not, These are the things that I want you to pursue. This is what Paul is saying. In this instruction, he's trying to tell the Philippians that I want you to be known for something specific. So that when someone asks, what's the word on the street about the church in Philippi? This is what I want them to say. When someone asks, what is the church in Philippi known for? This should be the answer, what I'm about to write to you. This is what he hopes is the word on the street about the church in Philippi. And those are good questions for us to ask. What's the word on the street about Four Corners? Who is Four Corners Church? I get this question frequently if I'm out and I meet somebody and they find out that I'm a pastor. Uh, the question is, is kind of broad. What's your deal What's your thing? Who is Four Corners Church? And there's, there's lots of good ways we can answer that. I usually kind of run through our vision statement. I talk about the text. We build on the exposition of the text. There's many good ways we can answer that. But I would submit to you that what Paul has in mind that the Philippian church should be known for is also what we ought to be known for. So what the word on the street about Philippi is ought to be the word on the street about four corners. And what Paul says when he hears the word on the street about the church in Philippi, what he hopes to hear is the beginning of verse 27, that their manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul wants to hear about the church in Philippi. That's what they should be known for. That their manner of life is worthy of the gospel. Structurally, because this is the leading imperative of the letter, this imperative hangs over really the rest of the entire letter. So that the rest of Philippians sits under the instruction to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This imperative controls in some form or fashion, the rest of Paul's writing. And this language he uses, to live a life worthy of, this is a common refrain from Paul. We hear this ringing a few times in Paul in the New Testament. So let me just give those to you. You can jot them down. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. 
I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, all of these are Paul, by the way, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, We pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In the first Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, we, enc- we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So I, w- I would call these the walk worthily verses. There's four of them. Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philippians. This chunk of of walk-worthily exhortation from Paul. But this one that we have in Philippians is unique. There's something different about this one compared to the other three. Because there's an idea here that we need to unpack that doesn't quite come through. Uh, The text is not mistranslated, uh, but it is, as many commentators would suggest, under-translated. Which means there is meaning in Paul's specific word choice here that doesn't quite come through in the phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of. The reason is because literally what Paul says is conduct yourselves as a citizen worthily of the gospel. There's a verb he uses here that's different. That means conduct yourselves as a citizen worthily of the gospel of Christ. Live as proper citizens. This is a call to proper citizenship that Paul issues to the Philippians. Conduct yourselves as proper citizens. And the reason he doesn't use the word walk in those other walk worthily verses, he just uses the very common word for walk around. But here, the reason he doesn't use the word for walk is because this language of citizenship would have packed a particularly potent punch in Philippi. And they would have understood this. The reason is because about a century before Paul writes this, Philippi was the site of a decisive battle in the Roman Civil War. This was the site of that decisive battle, and there were many veterans left in this area. So Philippi was reestablished as a Roman colony about 120 years before Paul writes this. And mind you, Philippi is 600 miles away. Uh, By the way, the crow flies. You had to cross the sea to get there. So how far it is by foot is not close. But Philippi is a, a Roman colony established about 100 years before. And we see the evidence of that if we go back to Acts 16 where Paul first comes to Philippi. If you remember in that, uh, in that scenario, Paul, Paul cast out a demon from a slave girl. Uh, he had some, some men that owned this girl and they were making money off of her because of this demon that she had. Paul cast out the demon and, and ruins their business plan. And they're upset. They're fussed at Paul for this. And this is what they say in Acts 16, 21. They say that this guy has been advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So we have men in Philippi calling themselves Romans. Those in Philippi were quite proud to live as citizens worthy of the Roman Empire. Because to be a citizen of Philippi was to be a citizen of Rome. And that's a big deal, to be a citizen of Rome. There was a coveted status 
to be a citizen of Rome. Paul talks about this at several different points in Acts as he's giving his testimony. In fact, at one point, the fact that he is a citizen of Rome saves him from lashings. And it doesn't quite translate when we think of ourselves as citizens of Noonan or Peachtree City or Georgia or or really even citizens of the United States because to be a citizen of Rome is is much more than mere patriotism. There, There was identity pent up in Roman citizenship. The way life operated, the way, we, the, the way you would have approached the laws of the town and, and the customs of, of the way of life. There was an honoring of Caesar at all, all the public gatherings. So to be a citizen of Rome meant an identity, a coveted identity. Paul knows this. He knows this would have been in the minds of the Philippians. So he turns it on his head and he says, as Christians, don't concern yourselves with being citizens worthy of Rome. You belong to something greater. You, Christians in Philippi, conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of a kingdom greater than Rome. The seat of power in this kingdom is not earthly but heavenly. It is ruled not by Nero, but by Christ. It is backed not by Lord, little l, Caesar. Your kingdom that you belong to is backed by the Lord Christ. And behind this imperative to be a worthy citizen of this kingdom is the fundamental reality that we as Christians belong to another world. We do not belong here, ultimately. In fact, Paul will pick up on this same word in chapter 3, verse 20. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding this, to go back to the last sermon, understanding this is the very thing that allows us to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because if you think you belong here, then to live is, is to live for all the things that here has to offer, right? But we know we don't belong here. We belong to Christ. So, so life can just be Christ. And then to die is to get to go where we do belong, with Christ, which is gain, far better, Paul says. If we could understand this, that we don't belong here. We belong in another world, to another kingdom, under another king. To understand this, I'm convinced, would cure us of all kinds of anxiety and strife and shame and frustration and impatience. That our most fundamental belonging is that of citizen of heaven. The most indelible mark on my life is citizen. If we were given an ID card as a Christian, that's what it would say. Citizen of heaven. That's the most impressive mark put on us as Christians. That we are citizens of another world. You know, one of the ways that the deceiver deceives is by convincing us that this is not true. Or that there's more to the story. You might be a citizen, but don't forget about your sexual history. 
You might be a citizen, sure. But don't forget that once an addict, always an addict. You might be a citizen, but you're really just a victim because of what happened to you. Right? We recognize this. Reject that. Say no. Hear the words from God through the pen of the apostle. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And your life is hid with Christ in God, secure. That is what defines you. And Paul's encouragement is in light of that, in light of your citizenship, live as citizens worthily. This is his encouragement to us as well. This is who you are, so go and do accordingly. The message is not, this is key, if you think of the word worthy, we could be thrown off here. The message is not, prove yourself worthy to live here. The message is, you are not worthy, but you have been made worthy, so go and live accordingly. You are not worthy, but you have been made worthy by the mercy of God and the blood of Christ, so now go and do accordingly. In that pattern, not worthy, made worthy, go and do accordingly. There's, a, there's an observation we should see. The famous grammatical observation is that the imperative flows out of the indicative. That might mean something more to some of you than others. That the imperative flows out of the indicative. All it means is that doing flows out of being. What we are to do flows out of who we are. And I, I want to sit here for a minute. Because we could go way wrong at this point if we're not careful. So I want to take us to two other texts to show you this pattern of not worthy made worthy, and then go and do accordingly. So I want to take us to two texts. The first one is Ephesians chapter 2, well-known passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're trying to observe the pattern of not worthy, but made worthy, so then go and do accordingly. In Ephesians chapter 10, you're not worthy. You were dead Chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 1 and 10. You are not worthy. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Children of wrath, not worthy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Not worthy, but made worthy. Verse 10. Why? For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were not worthy, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You were made worthy, Ephesians 2, 4 to 9. So go and do accordingly, Ephesians 2, 10. See this also in the text that Will read this morning in Titus. Perhaps not as well known as Ephesians chapter 2, but it should be. It should be. Titus chapter 3. Look at verses 3 through 8. You're not worthy. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, hated by others and hating one another. You are not worthy. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. You were not worthy, but you were made worthy by the mercy of God and the blood of Christ. Why? Chapter 8, uh, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see the order? Those who have believed then devote themselves to good works. This is who you are. Therefore, go and do accordingly. Paul only commands us to do in light of reminding us who we are first. Recognize who you are. You do not have to fight to become a citizen of this kingdom. In fact, that's the point. You can't fight hard enough. You wouldn't want to fight on your own. But you have been transferred into this kingdom. It's Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. We have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been transferred. Passive voice, active on God's part, passive on mine. The reason I spend so much time here is because if we get doing and being backwards, we miss the whole gospel. If we get these two backwards, we miss it all. Here's why. We've said that being must precede doing. That's why Paul reminds us of who we are as citizens first. If we go backwards and doing precedes being, we're now trying to work ourselves worthy. We're now trying to work ourselves righteous. We're now trying to do things so that we may be worthy. And that doesn't work. That's the point of the gospel. You can't work yourself worthy. You're not worthy. You had to be made worthy. You're not righteous. God makes you righteous. So live as the citizen that you have been made to be. Live as the citizen that you are to make much of this kingdom, to make much of this king that we serve. What should be the word on the street about the church in Philippi? It's that they should be worthy citizens of this otherworldly kingdom where the last come first and mercy reigns and Jew and Greek are brothers and the lion lays down with the lamb. That's the king, that's the kingdom that we represent. We live worthily of that kind of kingdom here on earth. So the next time you get the question, the next time I get the question, what's the deal of Four Corners Church? Who are you? Perhaps we could say, we are a people who are not worthy. But we have been made worthy by the mercy of God and the blood of Christ. So we live lives that are honoring to our king and strange looking to this world. That's who we are. That's who we've been made to do. That's what we've been made to do. To live a life worthily of the gospel in the eyes of this world is a strange thing but we would say a wonderfully strange thing. Broadly, to live worthily is to simply obey what Jesus commands. This is in the Great Commission, after all. To go and make disciples, or to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So in a broad sense, we live as citizens worthily when we obey all that our Lord has commanded. 
But Paul has some specific things in mind. So he goes on to define what it means to live worthily of the gospel of Christ. I will know that you are living as proper citizens if I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So we could summarize Paul saying, I will know you're living worthily if I hear that you are pressing onward together. This is our second point. Onward together. How, how ought they to exercise citizenship worthily? By pressing on into the gospel together. Apparently, Paul understands there to be a need for the Philippians to stand firm. There is some kind of opposition, and he wants them to not cower before it, but to be resilient and to be solid in the gospel of Christ. After all, the gospel is the foundation of everything they are in Christ. The gospel is the foundation of everything we are in Christ, so we may not waver on that point. If they are living worthily as citizens of heaven, there are certain things they may not do as citizens of Rome, right? They, they may not bow the knee to Caesar as other Romans would do, as other Philippians would do because they are Romans. They may not do that because they only bow the knee to Christ. There would have been significant pagan opposition to the strange Christian way in Philippi. Significant temptation to cower and shy away from a life strangely defined by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And does that not still define us today? There is no more Christian West. It doesn't exist. The Bible Belt is on its way out, praise God. That's the case for us as well. And we were never promised such green pastures to begin with. In some ways, we've been living in a fairy tale for 300 years on this continent. Not everyone has been. But we were never promised these greener pastures. Philippi was getting it way before we will. And in fact, quite the opposite has been promised. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if something strange were happening. Oh, it's strange to us. But opposition is not a strange thing. To live as citizens worthily of this kingdom is to invite such opposition. To stand Firmly and live boldly for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ necessarily means derision will come. The pressure to capitulate will come if we live this way, strange way. Paul knows if the Philippians are to live worthily as citizens of this otherworldly kingdom, it will invite opposition. 
Because the very nature of a citizen worthy of heaven is contrary to the nature of a citizen worthy of Rome. And the same is true of us. Remember what we said. We are citizens of another world. So as we live out the ethic of that kingdom, we will look strange to this world. And that invites very real opposition. So to live worthily, the Philippians and us must stand fast and strive onward and not be frightened. The word for frightened that Paul uses in verse 28, uh, it, it appears only here. and it, It's the word used for when, when horses are, are scattered into a stampede. Paul says, don't be on a hair trigger. Don't, don't, don't be in a, in a place where you're, you're ready to bolt at the slightest opposition, but be rooted and steadfast and unafraid. But as I read one commentator this week, he said, There is nothing here that speaks of bootstrap resolve. Remember, friends, I I don't want to be the one to tell you this, but God has not recruited the A-team. Look around. Look at me, right? God has not asked only the Navy SEALs to be strong and rooted and steadfast. Not the case. So we do not stand firm and steadfast and unafraid because we are so strong. The call, the call here is not to psych ourselves up and flex our muscles and be resilient. We are not worthy of this calling. We had to be made worthy of it because we're not worthy of it. We're not strong enough for it. We have to be made strong. In the spirit. He says this in the middle of verse 27. That you be standing firm in one spirit. If you're in the ESV, that spirit should be capitalized. It should be the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in the Holy Spirit. Because the spirit is who supplies the ability to stand firm. It it simply does not matter how much conviction you have. You don't have enough. To stand firm. Because it is only by the constant work and intercession of the Spirit that you will preserve, uh, persevere through this life of opposition. And it's not just about persevering from without. Paul doesn't mention this in the text, but we have to persevere from the battle within. There is a war that rages inside of each one of us. The, the remnants of the old man are battling the new man. This is all of Romans 7 and the first part of Romans 8. So it is the work of the Spirit that helps us to persevere. Not only the battle from without, but also the battle from within. So we must stand firm in the Spirit. I've heard John Piper say before that if you woke up a Christian this morning, it's only because God kept you from falling away overnight. There is not enough bootstrap resolve in you to stand firm and steadfast and unafraid. Here's the deal. On your own, you are far weaker than you think. Far weaker. But in the Spirit, we are far stronger than we could ever imagine. This is not a matter of your strength. It's a matter of your faith in the one that makes you strong. 
He is the one who preserves us to be onward for the gospel. So please do not leave here with bootstrap resolve to be rooted and steadfast. Because you, you might still have some, some resolve next Sunday and maybe even some left over the next Sunday. More than likely, you won't have any by the end of today, if you're honest. So leave here only intent to live as a, as a citizen worthily of the gospel, standing firm in the power of the Spirit. To be onward for the gospel. And that's where Paul puts the target. Notice, at the end of verse 27. Be, be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. His encouragement is not for the Philippians to strive for a seat at the table. For, for fair representation in the civic courts and authorities of Philippi. We... This is not a strive to to fight for our rights and our liberty and our autonomy. Not what Paul's talking about. Not the point. We are striving to be firm in the faith. Striving to live a life that reflects the beauty of the message of the gospel. The message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And where that message is under attack, we do not retreat. That's the message. It is the advance of the gospel that Paul has been so concerned for. Not the rights of the Philippians. Not their liberty. Not their autonomy. But the gospel advancing is what Paul wants them to be known for striving after. I think there's an important distinction we can make here. For us as a church, may we be known for what we are striving after more than we are known for what we are fighting against. Let me say that again. We should be known as a church more for what we are striving after than what we are fighting against. There is a fight happening. There is a battle raging, but it's not the battle you think. We do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battlefield. And to wage war on that battlefield means that we wave the flag of the gospel only. We wave that flag. We wage that war by living radically gospel-oriented lives of humility and unity and hospitality and forgiveness and fearlessness. In the face of opposition. And do not forget this. If we're waving the flag of the gospel. Remember. The gospel is the message. Of the suffering servant. The gospel is the message of the lamb. Who was led to the slaughter in silence. The gospel is the message of the one. Ephesians 5 says. Who laid down his life for the church. So when we wave the flag of the gospel, we wave the flag of that king. We represent that kingdom, which means our contending for the faith is not about bravado and swagger. Who cares if you look macho? 
Oftentimes, our fighting will be manifest with quiet obedience, in meekness, in head down, hand to the plow, faithfulness, when everything else is on fire. That's how we wage the war. That's how we operate because that's how our Lord operated. That's how Jesus did it. Laid down his life for the sheep. Not with chest thumping. With laser focused, spirit supplied, quiet faithfulness to exhibit the preciousness of the message of the gospel of the suffering servant. That's how we fight. That's how we stand firm. That's the message toward which we are to be onward. But not just onward. Onward together. This entire encouragement is towards a group. All of these verses are written not towards an individual, but towards a church. Every verb and every verbal word in this is in the second person plural. So that means for us, that means y'all. Every time you see you here, you can substitute y'all. And that's what Paul is saying, right? If he was from Georgia, he would have said, let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that whether y'all are standing firm, or so that y'all are standing firm and y'all are striving side by side and y'all aren't frightened. This is not written to you. It's written to us. No individual in Philippi could have read this and heard this just for them. But they would have heard it written to us as the church in Philippi. There is corporate and communal nature inherent to what Paul is saying. Paul encourages many people to stand firm in one spirit. He he encourages many people to be of one mind and to strive together. The word for striving in verse 27 uh, means to contend in an athletic competition with others. To fight in an athletic competition side by side with another. Here's the deal. You can't contend side by side alone. Of course. The thing that Paul points to that constitutes worthy citizenship are things that can only be done in community. Onward together. There's no onward solo. Onward together. So let me just... Make Paul's point abundantly clear here. You cannot live worthily of the kingdom of God by yourself. You cannot live as a worthy citizen of this kingdom alone. Because inherent in proper citizenship is being onward together. You cannot strive side by side with the universal church. What does that even mean? Strive side by side with a person, with you guys here. That's what it means. Strive side by side with another. This is why we commit ourselves to a particular people in a particular place. Because none of us can live worthily alone. My family and I just recently finished reading through Little Pilgrim's Progress. I know some of you guys are familiar with it. This is a children's version of uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. 
Uh, it's, it's great. All the, all the characters are little animals. Christian is a little bunny. Uh, it's, it's, it's great for kids. But in part two of The Pilgrim's Progress uh, 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 covers the journey of Christiana to the celestial city. And along the journey, it ends up being not just her, but a dozen plus of other pilgrims join Christiana on the way to the celestial city. All different kinds of pilgrims. And as we finished uh, the book just last week, this is one of the sentences that one of the pilgrims uh, says as they make their way to the end of the journey. We were so few when we started. But now we're quite a large company. Some young, some old, some weak, some strong. Yet the king has cared for us all. Is that not a beautiful picture for how we ought to journey in this life? That by the time we get to the end of our pilgrim's progress, through this world that we do not belong to, we would have been helped along by quite a large company. Some were young, some were old, some were weak, some were strong, some were men, some were women. The Philippians would have been saying, some were slaves, some were free, some were Jews, some were Greek. But we have journeyed onward together for the sake of the gospel, to honor our great king, and he's cared for us all. We strive together. We strive onward together for the gospel. In verse 28, says that as we do this, this is a clear sign to our opponents of their destruction and of our salvation. You see, as we press onward together for the gospel, that sends a message. It sends a message that there is hope in the gospel. We are seen by the world to have placed all of our eggs in this one basket. We are demonstrating that there is a reason why we are willing to suffer the loss of all things because there is hope in Jesus Christ. And as we demonstrate our hope in Jesus, we're sending a message that there is no hope outside of Jesus. The clear sign to those who live in the kingdom of this world when they see us is that they do not share in the same hope. Whereas citizens of heaven will find salvation, citizens of this world will only find destruction, Paul says. But we do not boast in our salvation and their destruction. Our being onward together for the gospel preaches a message that we're on a different road. If I can use the Pilgrim's Progress analogy, we're on the road to the celestial city. They're on the road to the city of destruction. That stark contrast, this way and that way, is intended, Paul's saying, to be like a bucket of cold water thrown on the face of the citizens of this world, to to wake them up and hear the invitation to join us on the way to the celestial city. Because the good king is greater than you can ever imagine. That's what our living worthily preaches to the world. So I just want to appeal this morning. If there are those here who are not citizens of this otherworldly kingdom, and you know, 
if you're a citizen of this world, loving the city of destruction, God has been merciful to you this morning to, to yet again grant you the opportunity to hear the gospel. And the gospel is that he makes unworthy people worthy. He turns the unrighteous into the righteous. He makes those who were not his people and he turns them into his people. You cannot make that happen on your own. It is only by the mercy and kindness of God that he draws anyone to himself. It does not matter what you've done. He can make you righteous because, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin, which is Jesus, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the exchange. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Totally unfair for our benefit. That's the gospel. That's the scandal of the gospel. But those who live only as citizens of this world have no hope in what that gospel offers. So be assured If you are on the path to the city of destruction, this life will end. And when it does, you will stand before the good king. He's good, but for you, he will be terrifying. You will give an account for what you have done with your son, with his son. You will either have been marked as a citizen of heaven, or you will have been marked as a citizen of this earth. And Paul says that leads to destruction. So let me say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we implore you, be reconciled to Christ. We live as worthy citizens, onward, together, and as we close, we do so fully engaged. Verse 29 and 30 says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We read the word for, there in verse 29, should be an automatic alert for us. That what's about to come is the grounds for what came before. Paul is giving here a theological explanation for the opposition he has just discussed. Why is there need for such steadfastness and fearlessness? Because the opposition was strong. And it must have been tempting to capitulate or Paul would not have issued the call to fearlessness. But why is the opposition there in the first place? The surprising answer that Paul offers is that like faith... God has given the opportunity to suffer as a gift. The word here for granted is the noun form, the the verb form of the noun grace. So we could read this, not just that God has given you this, but God has graced you with the opportunity to suffer. God has given them suffering by his grace as a gift. This adds layers to how we understand grace. Adds layers to what grace means. If grace is only, in your mind, the conference of blessing and benefit, then this is going to be hard to get. But the fact of the matter is, grace is not just the conference of blessing and benefit to the undeserving. If it were, 
then, then suffering would not be a gift. It's a grace. God is not sadistic, though. He does not give us suffering just to watch us suffer. So why? Why, why is the gift of grace, this, this strange concept in our minds, how is that a gift of grace? He gives us the answer twice, as if he just, he, just, he just does not want us to miss the point. It's a grace because it's for the sake of Christ. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but suffer for his sake. Insofar as we suffer for his sake, we are identified with Christ. When we, when we suffer for his sake, we are demonstrating that it is Worth the loss of all things if it means gaining Christ. Here's what John Calvin had to say about this strange concept. He says, oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of godliness? And yet, what is more certain than that it is the highest honor of divine grace that we suffer for his name reproach or imprisonment or miseries or torture or even death. Calvin called reproach, imprisonment, misery, torture, and death the highest honor of divine grace. And when we suffer that, this is the point, in that case, he decorates us with his insignia. As Christians, our call has been to embrace the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. So we are to identify with Christ's death daily by dying to ourselves and dying to everything that this piddly little kingdom has to offer. And when we do, it is an honor to suffer reproach for the sake of Christ because as we do, we are decorated with God's insignia. We are transformed more and more into his likeness. And as we do, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. For those who are perishing, we are the fragrance from death to death. Among those who are being saved, we are the fragrance from life to life. Some will witness our suffering as a reminder that they are on the road to the city of destruction and they will keep on trucking. Some will witness it as a reminder that they are on the road to the city of destruction and they will repent. And then some will see that as a reminder that they too have the same hope that leads to life. In fact, this is the exact thing that Paul has already modeled when he, when he began his ministerial update in chapter 1 verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that it has actually been for the advance of the gospel that all of this suffering has happened to me. And believe it or not, some of those who were on the path to destruction in Caesar's household, those guards who were chained to me, have done a 180, and now they're on the path to the celestial city. When we suffer well, in the Spirit, by faith, as citizens worthily of the gospel, we demonstrate, as I said two weeks ago, where our true affections lie. When we faithfully engage in the tax that God has given which for the Philippians 
with standing firm in the face of pagan opposition. When we do that, we put the spotlight on Christ. Our suffering well is intended to magnify him. That's why suffering is a gift, because it's an opportunity to shout to the world that Jesus is worth it all. That's why. That's why suffering is a gift. Both suffering under the hand of natural evil and suffering under the hand of moral evil, under the hand of other humans. So this is Paul's encouragement to recognize the dual gift. There's two gifts in this passage, by the way. Suffering is one. The other one is faith. And, and when, we, when we go onward fully engaged in the task at hand, at the intersection of faith and suffering, that is when Christ is magnified. That is when Christ is seen as the precious treasure that he is. So let us live out our citizenship worthily, showing the gospel to be so precious. Let us be onward in the spirit together to demonstrate that we are citizens of another kingdom and we belong to another king and suffering for his sake is worth the loss of all other things. Let us be engaged in the task at hand. Let us be citizens together for the gospel. Let's pray. God, what an undeserved blessing it is to be counted as among your children. Not only are we children, Romans 8 says, we have been called sons of God and heirs with our brother Christ. So we worship you this morning because you have rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So may our life shout the excellencies of this mercy as we live. I pray that this message will have landed for us who are believers as a reminder to live as citizens worthily of what we have been given. And God, for those who are not, who are on the path to the city of destruction, I pray that this message and the testimony of those Christians living faithfully around them might be the means you use to draw them to yourself. We pray now as we move into a time of the Lord's Supper that you would use this to remind us of who we are in Christ and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.